Whether it's her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct has everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. The Kakadu Plum is an Australian native superfood containing 100 times more vitamin C than oranges. So why have you never heard of it? PR. No one's drinking a Kakadu smoothie? I'm JB Smooth, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at and slash hypergig with details. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Guess what, Mango? What's that, Will? So you know my son, who, who's just eight years old now, he used to be completely obsessed with ACDC. You remember this, right? Yeah, it's hard to forget. <laughs> well, apparently there's a big advantage to having as many ACDC songs saved in our uh, on our hard drive as we do. And it's the Calm <laughs> Sharks Down. Have you heard this, Bingo? No. It was back in 2011. There was an Australian tour operator. His name was Matt Waller, and he started playing music from underwater speakers. And what he realized was that when he played Back in Black or You Shook Me All Night Long, that the sharks started to become much less aggressive. How strange is this? Super strange. So instead, they actually became calm and inquisitive. And they started nuzzling up to the speaker and rubbing up against it as they moved past (laughs) it. I can't say this is my reaction to hearing ACDC, but this is what they did. I love that, like, sharks dig ACDC and not other bands, you know, but uh, do you have any idea why they like it so much? No, and honestly, this guy was baffled as well. So as Waller told Time Magazine, quote, sharks don't have ears, they don't have long hair, and they don't headbang past the cage doing air guitar, (laughs) but they do seem to like the particular vibrations that ACDC casts off. In fact, it worked so well, he stopped using bait to draw the sharks near his diving cages. And instead, he just calms them down and lures them close with ACDC. <laughs> it's like they go into this hard rock trance. So today's show is all about sharks. Like, why are we so afraid of shark attacks? Why do they need so many teeth? And why <laughs> is punching a shark in the nose a terrible strategy if you want to avoid being eaten? So let's dig in. Hey there, podcast listeners. Welcome to Part-Time Genius. I'm Will Pearson, and as always, I'm joined by my good friend, Mangesh Hatikader. And on the other side of the soundproof glass, wearing yet another one of his classic shirts. Every week, I think there's no way he can top the last one, and then he somehow does. And so today's, (laughs) it just says, 
live every week like it's Shark Week. And I have to admit, I don't know exactly what that means, but I feel like it's so deep and it's something that <laughs> we really need to learn to live by these words. I'd, I'd actually put it right up there with the golden rule, even though I'm not 100% sure what it means. That's our friend and producer, Tristan McNeil. So after about a year of working here, I, I tend to get all my moral advice straight off of Tristan's shirts. I, I feel like he's basically a walking Confucius. Well, and from what we hear from our listeners, I think a lot of people are doing this too. I, I really don't <laughs> think he knows the impact he has in this world. But, you know, in this case, we're taking his advice to heart because today's show is all about sharks. That means we'll be taking a deep dive into the surprising science behind some of their unique characteristics as well as a few reasons why it's in our own best interest to keep the ocean shark friendly. And I know for a lot of people, the idea of protecting sharks is going to sound like a terrible idea, but that's part of the reason we wanted to do this episode. So with summer just around the corner, it, it felt like the right time to take a close look at the animals responsible for so much of the world's beachside dread. But rather than just perpetuating that old idea that sharks are ravenous and man-eating monsters even, we're actually going to try to make a case for why sharks should be feared a little bit less and, and actually admired a whole lot more. So we have these animal plates at my house and they've got foxes and owls and all these other cute creatures and bow ties. They're all kind of dressed up. And <laughs> I always end up eating off the shark plate like the kids always go for the cute animals. And I am tired of eating off the shark <laughs> plate. So for me, that's what's fueling this episode. But, oh, that's great. But I, I do think a good place to start is noting that while there are nearly 500 unique species of sharks in the world, only 30 or so have been definitively linked to unprovoked attacks on humans. So while this idea of sharks immediately conjures up I don't know, like scary ideas of tiger sharks or great whites in people's minds. Those kind of human-hungry peak predators, they're really the exception for shark species and not the rule. Right. And, you know, you actually said human-hungry, but but even that is not really the case when we talk about these species as well. Because, you know, I remember hearing that even these highly predatory sharks, they, they don't really care for the taste of human. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess we can't really compete with the taste of free-range bluefin tuna. <laughs> Um, sharks obviously don't typically hunt humans for food at all. In, in fact, the majority of shark bites are considered exploratory bites, which is basically the sharks just kind of taking a little taste to see if what it's caught is food or not. And after that first bite, most sharks decide, you know, they aren't in the mood for humans and don't go back for seconds. Of course, none of that means that a single shark bite can't be devastating on its own. Usually a nibble is all it takes to lose a limb. Yeah, I mean, you know, setting aside the unlikelihood of an attack and the intention of the sharks themselves, <laughs> it, it is easy to understand why so many people are scared of these creatures. And even a bite that leaves a person's organs intact still puts them at risk of, you know, significantly bleeding from that. And at the end of the day, some sharks definitely do attack humans. And when it happens, the results tend to be pretty horrifying. So, you know, you figure that has to color the way the average person looks at sharks, even if the friendlier species do far outnumber the killer ones. Right. I mean, as good a drummer as Jabberjaws was on that cartoon, it didn't <laughs> change our impression of sharks. Yeah, and he was a very, very good drummer, <laughs> to be honest. But, I mean, it's partially because, like, the only reports we hear about sharks are terrifying. And that makes it tough for people to think about them as anything but a threat. But the weird thing is that those feelings have persisted, even as a lot of media outlets are improving how they handle shark attacks in the news. Like, now reporters will often give a little perspective on the attacks by mentioning how rare shark attacks are overall. Yeah, and that's true. I, I feel like the line I always hear is how you have a greater chance of being struck dead by lightning than killed by a shark. I, I think the odds of dying from a shark attack are something like, you know, one in 3.7 million, whereas the odds of dying from lightning are 
I think one in 162,000. So it is a pretty significant difference. Also, I think Martha Stewart has claimed to have been struck by lightning three times, and she's <laughs> also never been eaten by a shark, which supports that data. That definitely supports that if that's <laughs> true. Do, does she actually claim to have been struck by lightning three times? Yeah, I think once was in her bed, once was uh, while she in was washing bed. dishes. Yeah, she has a metal wow. frame bed, apparently. <laughs> Oh, that is some bad luck. Well, there are plenty of other examples, too. I, th- I think, you know, you have higher odds of being killed by bee stings or squashed by unstable vending machines, which weirdly <laughs> is kind of a fear of mine, or at least it was when I was a kid, or or even crushed by falling coconuts. Those are all things that are more likely to happen to you than being eaten or bitten by a shark. <laughs> well, I mean, no matter how you want to measure it, the, the point is that sharks aren't nearly as big a threat to humans as we give them credit for. But that's still a tough prospect for most of us to believe. All right. So I'm curious, like, why do you think that is? Like, if we know grizzly shark attacks are really, really rare, then then why are we so unnerved by them? I mean, I, I think part of it is just the sense of otherness that people get from sharks. Because, I mean, if you think about other animals that prey on humans, you're thinking about like lions or tigers or wolves. There's still some sense of familiarity there. Like the characteristics and mannerisms we see in those predators kind of remind us of cuddly cats or the dogs we keep as house pets. Yeah. And it's similar with other occasional human killers like grizzly bears or gorillas. Like sometimes their behavior makes it seem like they're almost human, which causes people to underestimate the threat that they pose until it's too late. Right. And, you know, if you think about those animals, they're also pretty cute and playful when they're just babies. So. Mm-hmm. I would think that kind of furthers the the empathy that you're talking about. Definitely. And like none of this happens with sharks, right? I mean, baby sharks are called pups, but we don't see them as cute like puppies. So when when most people look at sharks, they see something completely unfamiliar to them. And, and humans tend to have a tough time grappling with the unfamiliar. All right. So it, it sounds like most of us probably won't ever really empathize with sharks, but but I feel like we can at least admire or even respect them a little bit more than we currently do. So Keeping that in mind, I know we both found a ton of surprising, you know, non-threatening reasons to be pro-shark. So I feel like maybe the best way to do this is just kind of have a back and forth and and, and maybe we can help these guys out on the PR front. I don't know why we're doing this, but but let's give it a shot. <laughs> yeah, I'm for it. So I, I'm going to start us off with the fact that sharks are way more social than we'd always thought. And this news actually comes from a group of Delaware-based researchers who spent nearly a decade tracking the movements of more than 300 sand tiger sharks. So this group tagged the sharks with these mobile transmitters, and then they logged how often members of the group cross paths with fellow sharks in the wild. And in the end, they found that sharks hang out in groups that shrink and grow in size depending on the time of year and the location which is actually something we see mostly in mammals like elephants or chimps and dolphins. Yeah, that's not something I'd I'd heard before. So just trying to understand this. So like in the spring, the sharks might go off on their own to mate, Mm -hmm. but then they'll like group up again later in the year to hunt together. Is that that how it works? Exactly. But even when they travel alone, like these sand tiger sharks still seem to socialize with passersby. Like the researchers who tagged all these sharks recaptured two of them at one point. And when they downloaded the data from their trackers, they found that just these two sharks had interacted with more than 350 fish. Oh, wow. And uh, were they mostly bumping into other sand tiger sharks or what? Yeah, for, for the most part. But they also ran into seven other different species, including a few other kinds of sharks and some plain old fish. But here's the really wild part. These encounters weren't just chance meetings with strangers. Like, the tagged sharks actually interacted with the same individuals over and over again And this would go on throughout the year. In fact, some sharks bumped into the same fish more than 20 times. 
Oh, that's so bizarre. So do the researchers know what's going on with that? Like, are they really forming these little friend circles or family groups out in the out in the ocean? I mean, it certainly seems that way, but but the truth is we aren't actually sure yet. Like, we'll still have to keep following sharks around until we figure it out. But so far, there's actually reason to think that sharks are much friendlier and also better at staying in touch than we ever thought before. Well, I, I want to congratulate you on on finding both a way to boost the public perception of sharks and your home state. Don't think I didn't <laughs> notice the mention of Delaware in there. That was uh-huh. well done. But, you know, while the social lives of sharks might bear some similarity to our own, I, I am sad to say they put us to shame in one category. And I'm going to go in a very different direction here, but I did find this interesting. And that's dental hygiene. I bet you didn't <laughs> see me going there. No. But, If you look at it, sharks actually can't get cavities. And to be fair, that's actually true of most animals since their diets don't contain anywhere near as much sugar as that of humans. But sharks actually have a really unique ability here, or a really unique feature rather, and that's that their teeth are completely coated in fluoride. And that's not an exaggeration. There was this research I was looking at. It was published in the Journal of Structural Biology that both makos and tiger sharks have teeth with outer coatings made from 100% fluoride. Whoa. And so there's reason to think the same is true for other shark species as well. That's really incredible. But it also reminds me, uh, do you remember when we were coming up with bad ideas for t-shirts at Menoflos and one of our friends was desperately trying to get us to make a shark shirt, like a t-shirt of a shark smiling, and it said, too many teeth, too little time. Which... I do remember that. I still have no idea what that means, <laughs> it made but we no should have made sense. it. I, I know. I'm kind of surprised we didn't make it. But uh, you, you were saying basically cavities aren't an issue for sharks because of their diet. But it also sounds like they don't have much of a problem with tooth decay, like if their teeth are basically encased in this toothpaste. Yeah, that's true. And, and not only that, but because the mineral that coats shark teeth is less water soluble than the stuff that coats mammal teeth, they're, they're actually perfectly suited for that underwater life. So then one thing I'm actually curious about is why are there so many loose shark teeth floating around? I, I mean, if their teeth are so protected, why are they always falling out? Well, see, that's the thing. And this is actually another point of overlap between us and sharks, because, you know, it turns out that shark teeth are just as weak as human teeth. And so this was discovered by that same German team of researchers who were studying the fluoride coating on their teeth. And what they found was that despite the added strength from the fluoride, shark teeth aren't any better than ours when it comes to resisting cracking or breaking. So shark teeth actually fall out all the time, you know, whenever they break or get too worn down. And This is made especially easy because shark teeth are actually only attached at their jaws by this soft tissue. So unlike ours, they're they're, they're not nestled in these like tight fitting sockets that we see in, you know, in human teeth. But don't they have a a never ending supply of shark teeth as well? I mean, I, I feel like anytime you see a picture of a shark's mouth, it just looks like endless rows of teeth. Oh, yeah. I mean, these guys are like tooth-making machines. And, and in <laughs> fact, it it only takes them, and this was one of the craziest stats that I saw, it takes most sharks about 24 hours to produce a replacement tooth. And over the course of an average, say, like 20 or 30-year lifespan, a single shark can go through literally thousands of teeth. So anytime you have a tooth falling out, there's always another one just a row <laughs> behind, and it's just ready to move up and take its place. It's pretty remarkable. Yeah, I, I love that shark dentist isn't a profession any shark should go into. I feel like there's <laughs> no money in that. So th- this is also dumb, but I, I wonder if anybody's ever knocked out a bunch of shark's teeth. Like, you know how if you're ever faced with an attacking shark, they say your best bet is to punch it in the nose? You know, it's weird because I've heard that too, and and so I decided to actually look into it. And 
it, it turns out that punching a shark in the face is just about the worst advice you could give a shark attack victim, <laughs> which honestly I feel like should have been pretty obvious from the start. And I, I really don't know how this rumor caught on, uh-huh. but I found this interview with a wildlife filmmaker and I wanted to include this quote because he has the best name of just about anyone we've ever talked about. His name is Andy Brandy Casagrande the Fourth. Is that not <laughs> such an amazing name? It's pretty amazing. I feel like he deserves his own episode. Well, anyway, he explains why socking a shark is such a dumb idea. So here's what he says. The reality is that sharks are pretty durable. Plus, water magnifies images. So shark's nose might look like it's six inches in front of your face, but in reality, its snout is further away. So when you punch and miss its nose, your punch trajectory will go slightly downward right into the shark's mouth. And here's his advice. Don't put your arm in a shark's mouth, which just seems like pretty sound advice. <laughs> yeah, it is. And it seems like even if someone did knock a shark's teeth out, they probably weren't around to talk about it afterwards. Yeah, I mean, I think you'd better go ahead and just take that socking a shark thing off of your bucket <laughs> list, Mango. But, you know, since we're back on talking shark attacks, there's a side of them I, I do want to talk about that actually might be another reason to be pro-shark, strange as that may sound. So let's take a quick break, and then I'll tell you what I mean. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Hi, I'm Cindy Crawford, and I'm the founder of Meaningful Beauty. Well, I don't know about you, but like, I never liked being told, oh, wow, you look so good for your age. Like, why even bother saying that? Why don't you just say you look great at any age, every age? That's what Meaningful Beauty is all about. We create products that make you feel confident in your skin at the age you are now. Meaningful Beauty, beautiful skin at every age. Learn more at MeaningfulBeauty.com. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. You're listening to Part-Time Genius, and we're talking about the science of sharks. Okay, Will, so I, I'm super curious where you're going with this one. Tell me, what's the upside to shark attacks? All right, so as tragic as shark attacks undoubtedly are, it's, it's possible they also provide a kind of paradoxical benefit to humans. 
So this comes from a well-known theoretical physicist and mathematician. His name is Freeman Dyson. And according to Dyson, for every swimmer killed in a shark attack off the coast of San Diego, there are 10 drowning deaths prevented due to fear of going in the water. So here's how he writes about it. He says, every time a swimmer is killed, the number of deaths by drowning goes down for a few years and then returns to the normal level. The effect occurs because reports of death by shark attack are remembered more vividly than reports of drownings. So, you know, the idea is here that after a shark attack, people are either more cautious in the water or they just avoid it altogether. And in the process of that, this effectively saves people from drowning. Now, hmm. to be clear, Dyson's yet to show enough solid evidence to back up this claim, but but it kind of makes sense if you think about it. And, you know, it's a nice reminder that protecting sharks could wind up benefiting in all sorts of kind of weird ways. Well, one thing we can definitely thank sharks for is the summer blockbuster, though I guess Steven Spielberg gets some credit for this, too. While this is something of a tangent, I, I do want to take a little time to talk about not only how Jaws has impacted the public image of sharks, but also how it revolutionized the movie industry as a whole. You know, I've read before how monumental this movie was in terms of building this excited audience. Like, it caught so many people's attention when it was released. I guess it was, what, 1975? Mm -hmm, that was the year it right. came out? And it actually became the first movie to ever pass the $100 million mark at the box office, which... If you think about it, not too shabby. This was this was really just a B movie about these three scruffy guys waging war with this largely unseen shark. So it's pretty incredible. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, the stellar box office wasn't the only way that Jaws was a game changer. I mean, the way the movie was advertised and also merchandised also fed into its success. And it established this new formula for Hollywood blockbusters. I mean, it's what Hollywood blockbusters still do today. And it's weird to think about, but prior to Jaws, there were actually no wide-release summer event films. Like, the tradition of luring moviegoers into theaters with these big-budget thrillers, especially during the hottest months of the year, it's a practice that really began with Jaws and was cemented two years later with the release of Star Wars. Wow. So, obviously, I, I know you looked into this a bit more than I did, and I'm curious, what made Jaws such an outlier? Like, if you look back in movie history, there were so many movies released in the summer months before Jaws, so why didn't any of these others catch on as the world's first blockbuster? Well, largely because at the time, the summer months were this unspoken dumping ground for all the studio's worst movies. So while today movies that studios have no faith in typically come out in like January or September, back then the thinking was that most people were too busy going on vacations or enjoying the outdoors, you know, to bother with going to the theater in the summertime. Wait, so, so looking back at this, so Universal had assumed Jaws would flop? Kind of, yeah. I mean, the original plan was to release it in Christmas in 1974. But when this production schedule just was so troubled and it dragged on for more than 100 days over schedule, the studio had no choice but to push it back for a summer release the following year. By the way, I don't know if you realize this, but Spielberg wasn't actually the movie's first director. It actually got offered to a number of people, including this guy Dick Richards, who got fired because he kept referring to Jaws as a whale. <laughs> I mean, if you're directing the movie, it feels like you should learn the animal you're yeah, shooting. Yeah, that seems like a pretty critical mistake there. But after, you know, so many of these setbacks along the way, Universal probably didn't have that much faith in Jaws finding an audience. But for whatever reason, a, a movie about people being torn apart by a shark is exactly what people wanted to see that summer. So Universal really just lucked into the success, it sounds mm -hmm. like. And, you know, since this is a shark episode, we should probably take a couple minutes to talk about the star of Jaws, which, of course, is this mechanical shark puppet that the crew referred to as Bruce. And as a real quick aside here, the shark's namesake is actually Spielberg's longtime and still current lawyer. His name is Bruce Raymer. 
Though there was a funny quote from him when he was asked about this by the Harvard Law Bulletin. He just says, they never paid me a royalty and that's all I know. <laughs> Which is spoken like a true lawyer. But uh, speaking of Bruce, I, I know the three mechanical sharks used during production were actually this constant headache for the crew. And, and in fact, that, that was a big part of the movie's delays, not to mention its ballooning budget which wound up a full $5 million over budget. But uh, apparently it was one nightmare after another with a shark. Like it was constantly slipping off its platform or I guess its foam skin would actually bloat from all the water and then it would just sink to the bottom of the ocean before filming could begin. And then like these scuba teams would have to go down to haul it back up. And of course, the other problem was that even when the shark worked, which was rarely, it didn't look very convincing, much less frightening. Well, I mean, I have to think that this was a real challenge for Spielberg. And this was actually only like, I think, his third theatrical film. But, Mm -hmm. you know, I've actually heard that this malfunctioning shark turned out to be more of a blessing in disguise than anything. Because what it did was it forced Spielberg and his crew to focus on building the suspense rather than just kind of looking at the carnage created by the shark. So, you know, for instance, early versions of the script gave the shark prop a lot more screen time in the movie's third act. But since Bruce was rarely working as needed, the production team really had to improvise. And instead, they used these barrels to show where the shark was in the water. And as Spielberg once put it, he said, I had no choice but to figure out how to tell the story without the shark. Which is such a tough spot to be in when you're making a movie about a shark. But obviously, he pulled it off. And it's just like Hitchcock used to say, right? Like, it's what we don't see, which is truly frightening. Which makes a lot of sense, but it does matter what we hear as this movie proved. You know, in the case of Jaws, of course, that's John Williams' iconic two-note theme. And I know we talked a little bit about this back in our Weird Government Investments episode, and we were talking specifically about how the use of suspenseful music in shark films has really contributed to the public's negative view of sharks. But I still can't help but marvel at how much dread they managed to squeeze out of just repeating that You know, and this was all done on a tuba. I mean, it really takes some (laughs) talent to make the tuba seem that threatening, don't you think? I think so. (laughs) But Williams was spot on when he later said that the theme worked because it gave the, quote, effect of grinding away at you, just as a shark would do. Instinctual, relentless, unstoppable. Yeah, obviously the music played a big part in making this as suspenseful as it was. But you know what's strange? While the film plays like fiction, there was definitely a real-life series of shark attacks that sound like they might have inspired Jaws. Really? I've actually never heard this before. And I I do want you to share this story. But first, let's take a quick break. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Hi, I'm Cindy Crawford, and I'm the founder of Meaningful Beauty. 
Well, I don't know about you, but like I never liked being told, oh, wow, you look so good for your age. Like why even bother saying that? Why don't you just say you look great at any age, every age? That's what Meaningful Beauty is all about. We create products that make you feel confident in your skin at the age you are now. Meaningful Beauty. Beautiful skin at every age. Learn more at MeaningfulBeauty.com. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. All right, Mango, so get us back on the topic of the non-mechanical sharks. And and I want to hear more about this real-world jaw story that you, you mentioned before the break. So this is something that started in the summer of 1916 with a shark attack at the Jersey Shore. And it was a 25-year-old man who died after being bitten by a great white on July 1st. And then just five days later, another guy was killed by the same great white about 45 miles to the north. And I mean, this was super strange, right? Because shark attacks don't typically happen in quick succession like that. And it's especially rare for the same shark to go on multiple attacks like that. But the 1916 attacks didn't stop with the second victim. And this is where it gets really weird. On July 12th, 11 days after the first attack, the the shark struck again another 30 miles to the north. But this time, the shark didn't attack along the shore. Instead, it traveled 16 miles inland through the Matawan Creek to claim its third and fourth victims. The shark's fifth and final attack happened just half an hour after the fourth, but Thankfully, the victim survived this bite and made it out of the creek alive. Which is just such a nightmare when you think about it. And I can definitely see how Peter Benchley might have been inspired to write his Jaws novel after hearing about all this. And it actually goes right along with that whole idea about there being so-called rogue sharks that just, I don't know, I guess they develop this taste for human flesh and then they just go on the hunt for other people. Yeah, and that rogue shark theory has actually pretty much been debunked at this point. Like most shark researchers now consider attacks to be kind of a one-off thing. In fact, the majority of shark attacks are isolated events, and they're either provoked, which means the shark was speared or hooked by a human who drew first blood, or else the shark attacked because it viewed the human as a threat or as a competitor for food. Well, what about those 1916 attacks? I mean, I get that multiple attacks from a single shark is unusual, but It feels like there still had to be some reason why this happened then, right? Mm -hmm. But even now, it's hard to say exactly what that reason was. Like, the best I came across was that the shark might have been injured or deformed in some way, which could have caused it to lash out at humans nearby whenever its pain peaked. And though it's kind of sad to think about, it's not a bad theory. We already know that some other animals, like elephants, for example, have been known to attack humans because they have... I don't know, like an injured foot or maybe a rotten tooth. So it's pretty reasonable to think that something similar might happen with sharks. Which makes sense. But I'm curious, though, like what happened to the shark after its fifth attack in in 1916? Well, it was caught soon after that last attack. And the shark's body actually wound up on display in a New York shop where the owner made, I guess, a fortune just charging people's admission to see it. 
which, you know, in itself has a very Jaws feel to it. If you think back about the characters, I could easily see the movie Skeevy Mayor, like getting on board with some sort of scheme like this. Yeah, totally. And, and if you already think this all sounds a lot like Jaws, wait till you hear this. So I, I was reading an interview with a scientist named George Burgess, and he's actually the curator of the International Shark Attack File. It's this amazing archive that keeps case files on over 5,000 attacks that took place between 16th century and today. And he said that the public's response to the 1916 attacks was the same reaction observed in cases all throughout the world. It also happened to sound quite a bit like what happens in Jaws. So listen to this, and this is how Burgess told it to Smithsonian. Quote, I see a common pattern around the world. When shark attacks occur, there's obviously shock. Then the second phase is denial, denial that it was done by a shark. It has to be done by something else. The third phase is the feeling that if we shuffle it under the rug, maybe it'll disappear. The fourth phase is realizing that none of those things are working and that we probably need to go kill some sharks. Then in the fifth phase, the reality sets in finally that that's not the solution. And we probably ought to bring in a scientist that knows what's going on. Wow. I mean, it feels like that scene for scene what the townspeople try in this movie. When you think about those different stages, you know, of shock and denial, cover up, machismo. <laughs> and then, you know, lastly, reason, though, that doesn't work out quite as planned either. Yeah, and that denial phase is particularly interesting to me. Like, I always thought it was ridiculous in the movie when the mayor tries to convince everyone that the woman was killed by a boat propeller and not mm -hmm. a shark. But people in New Jersey in 1916 proposed even weirder explanations. Like, uh, apparently someone pitched this idea that it was a school of sea turtles that was coming in and biting everybody, despite <laughs> the fact that, you know, turtles don't tend to school like fish or bite off people's limbs like sharks. <laughs> You know, I have to admit, though, I was skeptical at first of this, but I think you've sold me on this. I mean, these 1916 attacks, I don't know, it feels like they have to have been the inspiration for Jaws, at least to some degree. I mean, that's the thing. Peter Benchley has gone on record saying they definitely weren't the inspiration for the novel or the movie it spawned. I mean, uh, of course, there are plenty of people that shark researcher I mentioned included who don't buy that denial. Well, and I can see why. I mean, there's an awful lot of crossover between the two stories, but I can also understand why Benchley might not want the public to think his work was actually rooted in reality. And that's because years later, you know, after the massive success of Jaws as a movie, Benchley came to deeply regret his role in shaping public perception, or at least that perception of sharks as these man-eating beasts. And, you know, he actually spent decades trying to convince people that sharks weren't the villains that had been portrayed in the film. And, you know, for instance, there was a 2002 interview he did with Nat Geo, and here's what Benchley said there. He said... The theory that sharks target humans, that they are man-eaters, nothing could be further from the truth. Every time you see on TV people surrounded by sharks, the chances are 99% that the sharks have been baited. And it gives a false impression because by nature, sharks will stay away from people. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of amazing to see someone do a complete 180 like that. But I also think it's pretty laudable in this case. And actually, that reminds me, you want to hear my favorite fact about Peter Benchley? Sure. So when Discovery started hiring hosts for Shark Week, beginning in its seventh season, the first MC they ever got was none other than the Jaws author himself. Huh. I mean, it seems appropriate, you know, especially since Shark Week has also been accused of misrepresenting the ferocity of sharks. But, you know, think about this. To be fair, the event has gotten more and more educational over time. And it even functions as a fundraising drive for some, I think, pretty reputable shark conservation efforts now. 
So I, I didn't realize this, but 2018 is actually the 30th anniversary of Shark Week. Oh, wow. And in honor of that, they've got Shaq to host, which Of makes, course, that makes perfect sense. <laughs> it yeah. makes a lot of sense. But uh, I, I feel like they've had enough time to find that sweet spot between entertainment and education. Well, and if nothing else, I, I, I do give the producers credit for drawing some much needed attention to shark conservation. And, and like we said at the top of the show, it's hard to wrap our heads around the idea that sharks are in need of saving. You know, probably because we're so used to thinking that we're the ones in danger from them. But when you look at the numbers, it really tells a very different story. So, I mean, the sharks have survived for 450 million years on the planet, including no less than five mass extinction events. And so for the first time, it started looking like the survival of sharks could be in jeopardy. And, you know, I say that because today about a quarter of all shark species are threatened with extinction. And the main culprit behind their dwindling numbers is, I'm sad to say, us. And, and just looking at the numbers, it's pretty crazy. So more than 100 million sharks are killed by humans every year based on most reports. And that number is staggering enough. But there are some sources that say the number could be as high as 270 million. Wow. But you know, either way, when you consider that shark attacks account for only about five human deaths on average each year, it's obvious who the most dangerous predators really are. Okay, so just to sum this up, don't punch a shark in the face. Don't judge a shark by its creepy eyes. And do appreciate how great a movie Jaws is. Well, and let's not forget Tristan's shirt. Live every week like it's Shark Week. <laughs> right, that most of all. Okay, then I, I guess that's everything. Well, everything except for how we like to close the show. We got it. We got to have the fact off. Are you ready? Mm-hmm. I'm ready. So it is pretty amazing to think how long sharks have been around. I, I know you mentioned that they've been here for over 450 million years, but that's 200 million years before dinosaurs. Oh, wow. And in fact, they're even older than trees. Like, how can <laughs> anything be older than trees? <laughs> All right, we talked earlier about how much more dangerous humans are to sharks than vice versa, but it's even more sad when you realize what a waste it is when sharks are just killed for their fins. You know, because shark carcasses are bulky and worth a lot less than their fins because of these luxury items, things like shark fin soup, which actually can go for something like $100 a bowl. A lot of times their fins are removed and the rest of the shark is just thrown overboard. And this is known as shark finning. And in these cases, only about 3% of the actual shark is being used. So I'm fascinated by shark reproduction. Uh, the very unusual ghost sharks, which are named this because they live so deep and are rarely spotted have these really weird retractable sex organs on their heads. Like <laughs> the organs actually have these hooks and use them to grab onto female ghost sharks during mating. And on top of this, the females have a unique ability to store the sperm for years until just the right time for conception. Oh, that's so strange. Mm -hmm. You know, and you see so many cases of significant aggression on the part of males and several shark species during mating. And because of this, it's actually not surprising that the skin on female sharks typically is, is, is found to be a good bit thicker than that of males because the males actually often bite during mating so that that thicker skin is needed. Well, that might explain why some sharks have uh, figured out how to reproduce asexually. They're basically cloning themselves now. Well, one of the first cases of scientists seeing this came in 2001 when a female hammerhead at a zoo in Nebraska gave birth without the assistance of a male. This process is called uh, parthenogenesis. And it's where embryos are created without outside fertilization. Oh, that's so cool. Well, I, I think we may have talked about this before, but in the book Grunt, the terrific science writer Mary Roach writes about this top secret project during World War II. 
And in this project, the U.S. military was trying to use sharks to deliver bombs. <laughs> so the sharks were equipped with this headgear, and then they would use electric shocks to keep the sharks on track before they would deliver the bombs to these very specific locations. And it was a project that ran for a couple of decades, I think from the late 50s to the early 70s. And then it was discontinued without much fanfare because it turned out this was not really an effective way to deliver bombs. <laughs> I know. I feel like we're always trying to harness animals like pigeons or sharks or whatever. Yeah, and definitely. it's always a bad idea. It never yeah. is better. But uh, there's this other feature that I'm so fascinated by. And it's what goblin sharks can do when they're hunting. So they have this ability to do what scientists call slingshot feeding. And this is where they use these elastic ligaments that are attached to their jaws to basically catapult their mouths forward by almost 10% of their body's length. What? Yeah. And, and, and then they do this with like impressive speed. So th this is basically the equivalent of a person being able to slingshot his or her mouth about seven inches in front of it to snag food in front of its nose. That is so strange. That, so it's called, it's called slingshot feeding, you said? Uh-huh. Wow. I have to say, you mentioned ghost sharks, and now you've mentioned goblin sharks. I, I feel like you have to win today's Fact Off. So I I'm going to give you the trophy today, Mango. Thank you so much. Well, and thank you guys for listening. I'm sure we've forgotten some terrific facts about sharks. And because of that, we would love to hear those from you. You can always email us parttimegenius at howstuffworks.com or call us on our 24-7 Fact Hotline. That's 844-PT-GENIUS. Or you can always hit us up on Facebook or Twitter. But thanks so much for listening. Thanks again for listening. Part-Time Genius is a production of How Stuff Works and wouldn't be possible without several brilliant people who do the important things we couldn't even begin to understand. Tristan McNeil does the editing thing. Noel Brown made the theme song and does the mixy-mixy sound thing. <laughs> Gary Rowland does the exact producer thing. Gabe Luzier is our lead researcher with support from the research army, including Austin Thompson, Nolan Brown, and Lucas Adams. And Eves Jeffcoat gets the show to your ears. Good job, Eves. If you like what you heard, we hope you'll subscribe. And if you really, really like what you've heard, maybe you could leave a good review for us. Do we, do we forget Jason? Jason who? Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union, a savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. 
this time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.